Hello, everybody. This is the Lonely Guy, Steve Center, from the center of the known universe, Indianapolis, Indiana. You're listening to the Theories of Adulting podcast, the show that explores various theories of human motivation to explain the how, the what, and most importantly, the why of people's behavior. This podcast is for learners who love understanding people and why they do the strange things they do. Hello, we're back. I had a bout with illness. The illness itself wasn't so bad, but it wrecked my voice. I tried to record about a week ago and it it didn't sound right. I recorded another podcast last night that still sounded a little rough. I think I may feel like this one's a little rough, but I'm I'm still publishing them because they're much, much better. So I'm about a week behind. I mean, behind for who, right? This is a free podcast and I don't have a boss. So, you know, I guess I'm, I'm awesome. (laughs) Okay, now I need to come up with a very interesting title. This is a fascinating subject and a discussion that I think a lot of people are going to enjoy. I think if I give it a a title that says, recognizing the archetypes in our life, people will say, oh God, that sounds terrible. That's what I want to talk about are archetypes. And that's important because whether or not you realize it or I realize it, we use archetypes all the time and they are really shortcuts for our thought process you know depending on whose theory we're talking about like so many other things it can get can get really deep and more existential and not that's not really going to help us for what what we need to do because again this is about theories of adulting these aren't existential theories necessarily they are what do i need to understand to help me adult better and this is going to be a really powerful bit of information Because I will tell you that the institutions in our life, the churches, the political institutions, the courts, the police, the banks, corporations, uh, sports teams, even museums. I I mean, they utilize archetypes and archetypal thinking. I could say control and manipulate. I could say to push an agenda. I could say to support learning. They're all probably true to some degree, as I tend to do as, as I go through this. Just going to try to be really honest with some practical examples. So an archetype is a symbol that represents something, which is which is what a symbol does, right? Any symbol represents something. I think a good way that has helped me think about it is that an archetype, it symbolizes a set of information oftentimes told in story form. When we're young, most of what our learning comes from stories and that's good. And then we start thinking to ourselves that we're more mature and we don't need stories anymore. We want facts and that's fine. But eventually maybe we hit a point where we go, you know, I'd actually like to go back to my stories. Not because I want to, you know, learn tortoise and the hare and go to the locks of the three bears and these kind of real basic things. But because if I'm going to really understand how people work, I need to understand their stories. So I'm going to use a couple of really practical examples. I hope that in doing this, this will really clarify for people what archetypes are and how they're used, and how they're used to manipulate. Let's just go back to 1980. We had a brand new president towards the end of the year, Ronald Reagan. Reagan was a very popular president. He won handily, but if Carter had been able to successfully resolve the hostage situation and get them home, that might have been enough for him to win. Regardless, Ronald Reagan won. This really isn't about whether or not Reagan was a good president or whether or not he should have won, but about the narrative that came along with Ronald Reagan. If Ronald Reagan had simply been president, finished his eight years, for all intents and purposes, he had a successful presidency. Again, he won re-election in 1984 with 49 states. That's a success. People like that guy, right? That is not the issue that 
for most people, if they have a problem with the Reagan presidency, you know, they don't really like his economic policy. Well, that, so what? It's actually a much bigger issue than that. And, you know, I don't, I don't know if Reagan brought them with him purposefully or if they saw a guy and attached themselves i really don't know but with reagan came people like rush limbaugh and the religious right out of the south south suddenly turned republican with that came kind of this repeated narrative if you're a person who listens to conservative talk radio fox news whatever this is a narrative that's going to be really familiar okay so the idea is that america is a special nation uh, ordained by god to have a special role in the world and that the reason why America is so great is because there's something about America and about people who are born into the United States and this American experiment called American exceptionalism. This is a divine role by God to just simply be the best country in the world. And that narrative of American exceptionalism is repeated and repeated and repeated and repeated and repeated. And Rush Limbaugh came on the scene in something like 1985-ish. I'm not going to look it up. So, for more than 35 years, Rush and all of the people who have followed Rush trying to to copy what he does have repeated this, repeated this. I have sat in church meetings where they have talked about America being the greatest country in the world in church and debated whether or not America, you know, the United States of America should try to overthrow governments to put our president and Congress over those other nations because we're so great. Now, if a person begins to hear this over and over and over, they don't need to hear the entire lecture, all of the thinking. They don't need that. There become these key words and phrases which trigger big interpretations and plot lines and intricate storylines. And so, for instance, freedom. Now, I was a Republican for 40 years and I'm 47. My first memory, it may not be the very first, but one of my very earliest memories was Ronald Reagan's inauguration. I vividly remember the day he got shot. I watched it with my parents. And I say 40 years, yes, I'm a tongue-in-cheek, but I mean closer to four decades than three. And when you are a conservative, these are tremendous time-saving accounts. They're clues. Somebody says, patriot, you immediately are flooded with ideas that go back to George Washington connecting all the way through Abraham Lincoln and being on the right side of the issue with the Civil War. And even if a person is more inclined to be Southern, Southern during the Civil War, it's still this rightness that in the end, the right thing happened and there's no efforts to tease apart a cognitive dissonance at all. Because that's the point of an archetype is that it has these big, large than life meanings. Then there are words that represent archetypally the other side. I was talking to someone who's a very active conservative and I made some remark and he came back and just started labeling these conservative talking points, you know, Venezuela, Cuba, Castro, communism, socialism, just listing these words. And of course, that's not an argument or even a point. At the time, we were really having, I didn't think we were having a debate of any kind. I just thought we were just talking. You know, when he threw out those five or six words, I immediately recognized what was going on. They all have these big, big, big meanings to him. And because of the way that they've been, and again, it all comes from repetition, because of the way they've been repeatedly used, they don't need to be explained. I think that 
person would argue that the explanation is intrinsic within the word itself. You know, Venezuela is a terrible place, socialism, starvation, also, you know, just these things. So when you're having a discussion with somebody like that, it's, it's really impossible. And this is purposeful. It's impossible to actually make a point. And it's also nearly impossible to get a point they're trying to make. The thinking is to purposely create an environment where communication is impossible or just can't happen. That's a desired goal. Okay, well, that's not just something that I poke at the conservative party, you know, the Republicans and say, aha, they're doing this. They are doing this. It is absolutely part of let's talk sports. Now, if you're not a sports fan, these may not resonate with you at all. If I say the bloody sock, a whole slew of sports fans are going to know exactly what I'm talking about. Kurt Schilling, World Series, ankle injury, pitching, hurt, winning, despite being hurt, bravery, a sacrifice. So like I said, all of these, all of these meanings that come from that. If I say immaculate reception, and that goes back to the 70s, that's going to come with it a whole slew of feelings and thought. And if you're like myself, and I grew up not really liking the Steelers, a lot of those are very negative. But but most of that talk and those images and those names and the, those people purposely are designed to, to become larger than just the person we're talking about, because that's how you get fandom. And fandom is how and why people spend money. I mean, if I kind of like the Colts, I'm, I'm not really going to spend any money. That's, that's not very motivating. But if I live and die on whether or not the Colts win on Sunday, I'm, I'm probably am going to spend some money. I mean, I got to have a shirt, right? You know, I got to have a hat. I probably want to go to a game or two every year. And the easiest way to create that fandom is to invoke uh, names that are, that people, who our fans feel connected to. And so, you know, in Indianapolis, that's Peyton Manning, Edwin James, Marvin Harrison. You know, those are Super Bowl winners. When we think about when their name gets mentioned, again, it has this bigger significance than just, oh yeah, Peyton Manning was a really good quarterback who threw a lot of touchdowns. We absolutely see in literature the use of archetypes i really like jack reacher jack reacher is the hero he is unbeatable even if he dies he's still going to be alive and win that's the design of, of the whole series i just finished watching a movie alex cross by james patterson and by the end of the movie cross was almost a superhero and just strong and righteous and courageous and getting revenge and seeking justice. This is what he did. And so we, I certainly did as I was watching it. I was like, oh man, I was rooting for him. I wanted him to win. The most famous archetype in history would be Jesus Christ. I'm not making a statement about whether or not Jesus is a real person or whether or not he is divine. I do identify as somebody who would call myself Christian and I go to church, but that's, that's not really what this is about, right? This is about when we mention Jesus or the Beatitudes or Golgotha or the Easter or, or, you know, whatever, all these various things. I mean, there is a flood of very powerful memories, narratives that immediately get triggered. So when we talk about the Bible, there is a great gulf in our 
at least in the United States, I don't want to speak for any other country, but in the United States, there's a great gulf between people who think that the Bible is a book and a person may or may not want to run their life by it. And another group which feels that the Bible should be the cornerstone of our entire culture within each of those groups, but more so the, the religious side, because religion lends itself to this. It's not that the one side is more mature or sophisticated or anything else than the other. It's just religion lends itself to this because religion is a series of its stories. So, you know, you say Jonah and the whale and a person who grew up going to Sunday school class knows all of this information, but all of this lends itself to stopping dialogue. All of this is something that a manipulative person can really utilize. If I were reading tweets, uh, news releases, statements, whatever, I would be looking, in fact, I do look for these kind of code words, which then become big triggers for whoever they are directed towards. So when Marjorie Taylor Greene said the word thug because Dr. Dre wouldn't let her use his song, that was a very racially charged word people who were offended by that word had a whole bunch of feelings that came just from hearing that word attached to those feelings are memories experiences kind of our collective experiences and people who that term thug resonated with same thing when we're in literature the most archetypal of archetypes was probably hamlet and i don't know if any other story has been retold as often as hamlet is but it's always the same archetypes right the disgruntled and cast out person from the community doesn't have to be a son they are seen by the community as less than as a wild card as not safe not respectable and then the establishment and within the establishment you have all of society's rules and norms and all of the things government or a nation or a church or a university or whatever institution you want to talk about does to ensure that it maintains its status i don't hear this word a lot anymore but when i was younger And if you go through church history, and I'm talking going all the way back to early, early pre-Catholic church, excommunication was a word that got thrown around a lot, and it had attached to it a lot of really bad things, like going to hell, and not being able to be part of the community, and having your family shamed, and people forever knowing that you were bad, on and on. I don't hear that word used as much, but I know that in my own religious circle, when I was younger, that was a term that was used a lot more, and it carried a lot of those exact same bags with it. The reason why this is so important is one, I want to be able to to talk about this on other issues going forward. But number two, one of the things that a person has to go through to become more grown up, to become more independent, is they have to start recognizing when they're being manipulated. Now, my children do a great job of making fun of me when somebody will will text me out of nowhere and I respond and they'll be like, Dad, that's a bot. You're dumb. Okay, you know what? I can accept that. It's a bot. I didn't recognize that. I will say that if a 20-year-old girl is messaging me, I assume she wants to sell me nudie pics. I can't imagine that there'd be any other motivation besides that. I look at a lot of younger people being very savvy in this internet world world. Like I said, recognizing bots, doing a pretty good job identifying good versus non-reliable sources. Much, much, much better than the older people are doing. But what I'm specifically talking about is specific messaging by a person or a group, regardless of what type of group it is. I mean, if you have a church, I think church is supposed to be a safe, sacred place. And I think that then that with that, people kind of get an anti-church feeling and they say, 
oh, Christians are hypocrites. And of course, that's not accurate at all either. But I think that the average person 100 years ago thought of the church, whatever church it was, as a safe institution that you could really rely on. And that's not true right now. That's not how people, especially younger people, view the church. When I was younger, I remember being told very plainly that the president of the United States would never lie to us. That was beneath the dignity of the office. And of course, I can't imagine there's anybody who believes that now. These are these archetypes. I want you to be able to recognize them when people are using them in their propaganda, or it doesn't even have to be propaganda, but when people are using them in their tweets, when people are using them in their messaging, and there's nothing wrong with doing it. Like this is, I'm not saying catch them doing this terrible thing, but I am saying That if you're going to be a mature consumer of information, this is really important. Then we get better at recognizing it when we, as we start to internalize what the concept is, this is always true. If a person starts to say, okay, this is what Senator was talking about, Donald Trump the buffoon. Well, maybe Donald Trump's a buffoon. I'm not saying he is or isn't, but I'm saying that Donald Trump, the name, triggers huge, powerful, overwhelming memories, emotions, groupthink from people who hate him and from people who idolize him to the point where in order to find out what's actually being said, you, you you almost have to like, okay, this is what's happening. This is what happens when people mention Donald Trump. What is actually being said? And I, I was not a Donald Trump fan, but there were times when, when I agreed with something he did. If a person is president for four years and they didn't do one single thing that you agree with, you probably were not objectively looking at what they did. We are so inundated with celebrity that almost any really famous person being mentioned will trigger a lot of those feelings. But then behind that is the type of imagery that's either being used to describe that person or that they themselves are describing. I was reading a tweet by Gwyneth Paltrow and she was talking about, you know, morning dew and mist and all this kind of stuff. And it was very flowery and granola and not something I was particularly interested in, but I did note each one of those words was designed to trigger really specific emotions in people. Well, that's what archetypes do. An archetype isn't a bad thing or a good thing. It is simply a thing to recognize. And once you recognize it and get good at recognizing it, you become a much more sophisticated consumer of media, of television, books, YouTube videos. As the drivers of information become louder and shorter, I mean, TikToks are are short and they're pretty loud. You've got these YouTube shorts and eventually our political messaging will just be one person screaming for two seconds. To get past that, we really have to kind of become good at identifying what they're supposed to be representing. I'm hopeful that this discussion will be enlightening and will help open up other discussions going forward. We can really expound on them because we've got this basic concept down. All right. Thank you. I'll see you next time. Thank you for spending time with the lonely guy. In addition to lonely guy with a book, Steve has podcasts, losing weight with the lonely guy theories of adulting from the beginning, a doctor who review and a complete review of the Arrowverse universe with his beautiful wife, The Lonely Gal. If you want to read Steve's column, you can find that on medium.com with the username at MYLDSBooks. If you'd like to reach Steve, you can reach him at MYLDSBOOKS, that is MYLDSBooks at gmail.com. Until next time, signing off.